0: So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
1: Join us today during the Jeep Celebration Event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE.
2: to Terrify.
1: Good evening, children of the night. We are still continuing our summer road trip south. But the two stops we've had for this week will be brief, because our show will be ending with a bit of Sylvia Schultz lights out. I know this is a horror podcast, but there is only so much ghost we can put in front of you in one go. The first place that we have stopped is the Droop Mountain Battlefield. Found in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, this was the site of the Battle of Droop Mountain on November 6, 1863, the largest conflict between northern and southern troops, which would also lead to the end of any legitimate Confederate resistance in West Virginia. The primary commanders of the force were Brigadier General John Eccles for the Confederacy and Brigadier General W.W. Averill, serving for the United States. The people who live in Greenbrier River Valley now will tell you that on some dark evenings at the battlefield you might see one of the soldiers, headless and glowing, walking the sight of his own violent death until the end of time. Back home in Virginia, I lived near lots of battlefields. A year or two back, my dad, visiting from Ohio, brought my two nieces to see some of the battlefields. As of important significance as they are, there is no greater boredom for children than visiting battlefields, because they're, well, fields, empty fields with signs on the edges. Now, at night, that might be a different story. Then they will come alive with the no longer living, be those apparitions, be real, imagined, or somewhere in between." A little further south from Droop Mountain, we'll find ourselves in Beckley to visit the Soldiers Memorial Theater. While we're here, we might be able to take in a band or a play here, but after the music has faded away, we might just hear children playing or unexplained saxophone music. The folks around here might speculate on who these ghostly children and musicians might be, but one thing is for sure... During the laying of the cornerstone for the building on November fifteenth, 1931, there was a platform that collapsed, injuring a half a dozen people and spelling out a bad omen. Now, I have to admit, I'm not very familiar with this area, but I'd like to think that some of those ghostly children playing inside of the building late at night may have been some of the very children that didn't go to school in 1974 and 1975 due to a violent clash between a couple sects of Christian fundamentalists and the school board over a few textbooks. These clashes led to the schools being shut down in Kanawha County several times, and the violence became so bad that an elementary school was dynamited. Perhaps the Soldier Memorial Theatre served as an oasis of calm for children to hide away from a controversy that they couldn't understand, and a violence that they could. Our story for the night, before we hear from Miss Schultz, will be from Phil Void. It'll be a story about a mysterious stranger who helps a losing basketball team to win, but wants something in return. We actually have heard from Mr. Void way back in episode 123, in which I narrated the story, Having a Drink, written under the pen name T.T. Tressel. The story actually was turned into a short film and found itself on the official selection lists for a film festival or two. Phil lives in Ottawa, Canada, a stone's throw from the Parliament buildings, and is working on a couple of novels. Also, his short story, Mr. Bronze, has made its way into an anthology, Fear's Accomplice, published with Create Space Independent Publishing. The anthology also includes T. Fox Dunham, who we've heard on the show before. But let's get on to our story. Now we will hear Phil Void's Dean of Gravity. In the showers, it's easy to tell the
3: married men. They've let their bodies slide into comfortable middle age. Greg has a spare tire. Bruce has more than one, but not yet two. Call it a mag-wheel. Stan is the blubber king. He has enough spare tires to supply a monster truck show. Jamie has a flat stomach. He's single, of course, the only bachelor among the four valiant players who showed up for the season opener of the aptly named Goliaths. When I asked the league convener about joining the worst team in the league, he laughed so hard he almost choked on his sloppy, malodorous sandwich. "'That'd be the Goliaths. God, I love that name. They're all giants, and they always lose to smaller guys. Lose big. Every single game for two years now. You sure you want to join the Goliaths?' The married men are all smiling as they soap their jiggling bodies. Jamie is smiling, too, as he scrubs, but without the rolling flesh. The unexpected, resounding victory will keep them glowing long after the heat from the showers has faded. I know. I've seen it many times before. "'So, Amher, says Stan. He hesitates. My name's as strange as the rest of me. He has a finely trimmed beard where his chin used to be. "'What do you do?' "'Ah, the universal male conversation gambit. "'They're all trying not to stare.' but their curiosity is betrayed by the intensity of their ablutions. Bruce, with more hair on his buttocks than his scalp, has so much shampoo lathered up, it looks like he literally has his head in the clouds. I'm a freelance photographer. A photographer? That sounds interesting. The others make equally pointless sounds. They're not interested in my work. Photography doesn't give them the answers they really want. They want to know how I can dunk when I'm only five foot nine and white. Very, very white. They want to know if I've ever played professional basketball. And most of all, why did I join their team? The Goliaths of the YMCA Night League isn't exactly the dream of high flyers. The gravity challenged, as some of my former teammates used to describe me. Are you from around here? asks Greg. Another standard male conversation device. I know what he's thinking. If I'm from somewhere predominantly white say, Indiana, where basketball is a religion, then my talent will no longer be a riddle. I'm tempted to announce that I'm from the moon, and hence my paleness and lack of gravity. I don't. They're happy. I wouldn't want to spoil the mood. I'm originally from Toronto, but I've moved around a lot due to my work. Greg washes soap out of an eye. Toronto. Great city. The CN Tower, the dome, the, um... "'The raptors,' says Stan. "'The blue jays, the maple Leafs, toronto has got it all.' "'And don't forget that tower,' says Jamie. "'The other three look at him, "'shaking their jowls in disgust. "'Greg already mentioned that, Romeo,' says Bruce. "'Jamie hides his embarrassment under the shower's jet. "'It isn't the first time I've heard one of the married men "'call him Romeo or something akin. "'It isn't a compliment. "'Despite the flat stomach, Jamie's not a swinging bachelor. "'He has no confidence.' his friends have done this to him. They've taken advantage of his essential shyness to vilify his bachelorhood, ruining any shred of self-possession in the process. I know why. The married men have chosen the bonds of matrimony, and now seek to validate their choice through the pillory of the unbonded one in their midst. I've seen this before from thoroughly married people. Of course, there's also jealousy of Jamie's freedom, the cross-eyed monster, as Mara used to call it.
2: Edith pulls my hair because she's jealous, mine is long and black, and hers is like seaweed. She's just a cross-eyed monster, right, Papa?
3: I await the third question of the male small-talk trinity. I assume Bruce will do the honors. I'm wrong. It's Jamie. Are you married? he asks. There's hope and desperation beneath his casual manner. He needs an ally against the remorseless institution of marriage. I was... "'I'm a widower.' "'They're shocked. "'The splash of water on soft bodies and hard ceramic tiles "'is the only sound in our end of the showers. "'Surely I'm too young to be a widower. "'I know what they're thinking. "'Car accident. Cancer. "'I'm not just a basketball hero any more. "'Now I'm a tragic hero.' "'Oh, I'm sorry to hear that.' "'And he is. "'But somewhere in an unacknowledged part of Jamie "'a message is left. "'An ally has come.' Sten attempts to shoo away the pall that has settled over their victory. We always go out for a drink after a game. It's kind of a tradition. Do you want to grab a beer with us? Yeah, says Jamie. Come on with us. You can teach Don Juan here to score, says Bruce, winking at everybody. The married men laugh. We go to a sports bar, of course. I could navigate Don Lemon's tavern with my eyes closed. These places are as identical as the steel bars of a prison, The wishful memorabilia, the widescreen TV, the trivia computer that's no match for the customers. The most immutable fixture from city to city are the customers themselves. Potato-chip-bellied, lazy-boy quarterbacks. Their conversations about left-wing and right-wing have about as much to do with politics as the chicken wings they gobble. Stan holds up his draft. I'm in their court now, surrounded by big, sloppy, slouching bodies. Jamie has been forced halfway out of the booth by Stan and Greg's bulk. Everybody's happy again. To the Goliath's first win! May there be a whole bunch more! Hallelujah, says Bruce. They drink, taking manly gulps. I allow the revolting liquid into my mouth as long as I can bear it, before expelling it back into the mug. Soon I will take my draft and go examine some of the memorabilia hanging on the walls. My mug will be empty when I return to the booth. "'There are a surprising number of thirsty nooks and crannies in most rooms.' "'The Goliaths return to their questions, without even a cursory attempt at chit-chat. "'Their curiosity about me must be excruciating. "'I know how they feel. "'The maddening incompleteness of not knowing. "'The impossibility of serenity. "'These feelings come to me every time I think of Mera. "'Bruce lowers his head, focusing his shiny scalp on me, and goes for all the marbles.' "'Have you ever played pro-ball? "'The way you kick butt out there tonight.' "'It always comes down to some version of this question. "'I'm their fantasy surrogate. "'If a little white guy like me can fly, "'then the sky's the limit for them. "'They can't help imagining me, them, "'doing my, their, miraculous dunks on TV. "'Together we can make the highlight reel.' "'I shake my head. "'I'm just a photographer. "'The last thing I want is fame and some idolatrous nickname,' like the ones my former teams gave me, the dean of gravity, the ghost of coast, alabaster blaster. They're stumped. Who is this ghost of coast? Though they are all well over six feet, the only thing they can dunk are doughnuts. How do I break the law that binds them to the hardwood? You know, you should try out for the NBA. I bet you could make it, says Jamie. Man, oh, man, says Stan, that one dunk of yours... You were so high you could have put the ball in with your knees. I saw that too. Jamie is getting excited. He almost slips completely off the booth's seat. How do you do it? Can you give us a training program or something? Please tell me you'll train us. He's so earnest he reminds me of Mara.
2: Mama told me you've changed, Papa. That we can't live with you anymore. Please tell me you'll make it better. Promise me you'll make it better. You must promise me, Papa.
3: Can you help me get rid of this? Bruce squeezes his spare mag wheel with both hands. The wife has started to bitch about it. The married men laugh. Stan and Greg start grabbing at each other's blubber. They don't want to hear about training programs. They're too comfortable. Unquestionably, they are thoroughly married men. Jamie takes a long drink, attempting to extinguish his frustration. He sets his glass down and looks at me with an almost formal sincerity. I must restrain myself from smiling. He has a foam mustache from the beer. How do you jump like that, Immer? It's like you're floating. I want to answer. I'm an unnatural. But they already look confused enough about their new teammate. Any additional bafflement might spoil the mood. Well, Pogo Man, says Bruce, are you going to let us in on your little secret? Years of practice, I say. Years and years of practice. Bruce shines his scalp at me. What do you mean, years and years? How old are you? Twenty four? Five? I'm forty. They're shocked again, but not into silence. They make loud noises of disbelief. I shrug during a lull. I'm single. Us bachelors have all the time in the world to keep ourselves in shape. Right, Jamie? That's right! Jamie laughs, inordinately pleased with his new ally. I decide it's time to end their pointless questions. No one has ever figured out why I'm the Dean of Gravity. I take the pitcher of draft and top up everybody's mug. Thankfully, the pitcher is empty before I get to mine. I indulge in my own particular small talk device. Do you have any children? I direct this towards Stan. He oozes fecundity. Jamie's pleasure at having an ally is crushed under the betrayal of my question. His ally has uttered words from the realm of marriage. Sure do. I've got three monsters, all boys. He is proud of this latter. Jamie excuses himself, avoiding my gaze, and flees the booth, stalking over to the trivia computer on the bar. That's great, I say, and mean it. I love children. Mara is a part of me. I may forget my own name when I am ancient, but I know nothing of Mara will ever be lost. I will never censure marriage. It is the source of children.' Two more and you'll have a basketball team. He gestures at Bruce and Greg. Heck, with Bruce's two boys and Greg's Larry, we've got five plus a sub. We laugh. My boy can already bounce a full-size basketball, says Greg. Doctor tells me he's going to be at least six foot six. I smile and look suitably impressed. I reach into my jacket's inside pocket and bring out the gold-embossed holder. Bruce whistles. Nice. Looks like an antique. I open the holder. This is my daughter. They're fascinated by the grainy black-and-white photograph of Mira. That photo looks sort of like an antique, too, says Stan. How'd you manage? Oh, right. He smacks his forehead. You're a photographer. Could you make one of these for my family, says Greg? Barb would love it. Of course. Stan and Bruce also want antique photographs of their families. I don't even have to ask to see their family photos, They're already digging through their wallets. Jamie sneaks a glance at me. He hasn't wiped off the foam mustache. We stay until closing time. By then, I am an honorary married man. I was especially pleased when they fell all over each other trying to be the first one to invite the Goliath's savior over for a home-cooked meal. It's always a relief to get the requisite invitations out of the way. We leave the booth with much groaning and complaining about sore muscles. The big victory has caught up to their big bodies. We head over to the bar to get Jamie. I feel like I'm in the middle of a herd of elephants. I expect to see them link hands as we migrate through the tables. Jamie is still hunched in front of the trivia computer. He has gone through a tower of quarters while we discussed the joys and travails of marriage and children. Let's go, Romeo, says Bruce, unless you want to walk home. Stan leans over Jamie and punches a button on the machine. The answer's C., Percy Williams is the only Canadian who's won both the 100- and 200-meter sprints at the same Olympics. The machine chimes its approval of the answer. Stan slaps Jamie on the back. Ah, see, what did I tell you? I was going to pick C. You didn't give me a chance. Yeah, sure. All four of them chip in and pay for my beer, a small bribe to ensure my presence at the next game. We walk back to the YMCA's parking lot. The married men are boisterous, pushing and shoving like they are boys on their way home from school. "'Do you need a lift home?' Greg asks me. "'I have a car, thanks.' I point to my van in the far corner of the parking lot. I want to tell him it's also my home. I don't, of course. "'Hey, maybe I can catch a ride with Emmer?' I stop, surprised at Jamie's request. The other men stop, too, following my lead as if we were still playing basketball. I see the hopeful desperation in Jamie again. He wants to revive our brief alliance, but I can't have him seeing where I sleep. Sorry, Jamie. I'm afraid my passenger side no longer has a seat. A thief used a crowbar on it when he discovered my stereo had already been stolen. Oh, that's too bad. The others, and shake their heads at the gall of a thief who would actually harm the property of the alabaster blaster. Just once I'd like to catch one of those bastards in the act, says Bruce. We part with many cries of great game and see you Tuesday. The parking lot fills with headlights and revving engines. Stan rolls down his window as his station wagon drives past us. Goliaths! Goliaths! he yells and honks his horn. I'm the last one to pull out of the lot. I follow Greg home, which turns out to be a nice two-story brick and stucco house in a nice neighborhood. There's a basketball net over the garage. It has a glass backboard. Very nice. I park a block away as Greg pulls into his driveway. He uses a turn signal, even though the street is empty. He plays basketball the same way, never fouling anybody, never violating any rule. The garage door is automatic. It swallows the Toyota in a medieval rumble. I wait. The van's engine ticks. This is always the most burdensome part waiting for them to get into bed and commence an amorous celebration of the big victory with their wives. It's a dark night, so I check the camera to see if the film I loaded is 3200 ISO. One of my shoelaces is loose. The Goliaths were amused by my tattered, old-fashioned canvas sneakers. Bruce called them Richie Cunningham specials. They were a Christmas gift from Mara, the first one she was old enough to think of herself. "'I'd rather play in bare feet on a court of broken glass "'than replace them with an air this or a pump that. "'I smile as I retie the lace. "'Most of my teammates end up switching to some facsimile of Mara's shoes "'after they see me defy gravity. "'When I'm certain Greg and his wife are absorbed in their fleshy pleasures, "'I loop the camera around my neck and get out of the van. "'I run to the nice brick and stucco house, as silent as a coasting ghost. "'I should be after years and years of practice.' THE DRIVEWAY HAS RECENTLY BEEN REPAVED. IT'S LEVEL AND SMOOTH, PERFECT FOR BASKETBALL. I LEAP TOWARDS THE NET, RISING THROUGH THE DARK. MY FINGERS CLOSE OVER THE RIM AND I HANG THERE FOR A MOMENT, LETTING GRAVITY STRETCH AND SOOTHE. I BEND MY ARMS, LIFTING MY BODY. I KISS THE RIM. THE METAL IS COLD AND TART. I LET GO, SAILING DOWN TO THE DRIVEWAY, AND FOLLOW THE NEW PAVEMENT AROUND THE SIDE OF THE HOUSE. I hurdle THE BACKYARD FENCE. A riding mower is in the middle of the lawn. Half the grass has been cut. I examine the second story. The correct window is easy to find. I slide the camera's shutter open and turn on the flash. I back up to the lawn mower. One of its wheels has fallen off. I race towards the house and jump from ten feet away, drifting through the cool spring night. Jamie was right. It feels like I'm floating. My hands close over the window's narrow sill. I pull myself up, getting my toes onto the sill, balancing myself by pinching my fingers around the frame. The window is open, of course. Why close and lock a second-story window? Mosquitoes are the only things that can reach one without a ladder and an excessive amount of noise. I slide the screen up all the way, then the window. I step into the room and tense, as I always do at this point. But there is no hammering blast to swat me back out the window. Oh, yes, having an invitation is a relief. The bedroom is laden with the stale air of sleep. Greg wasn't bragging. His son is enormous. A bear cub nestled in a cave of Spider-Man blankets. I take a photograph. The cub stirs, rolls over, knocking a pillow off the bed. I turn off the flash and close the shutter. I pull down the blankets, exposing pajamas adorned with the current basketball heroes. I whisper my gratitude to Greg for inviting me over for a home-cooked meal. There's nothing better than home-cooking, nothing under the sun. I stroke the warm, messy hair. The blood of children is the quickest, full of life. The veins of adults, even adolescents, are slow, their thin, flat brew offering only subsistence. Life's wine is finest when it hasn't aged. With this cub's gift, I'll continue to mock gravity, soaring above both its clutches and degenerative effects. I'll be forty forever, and soon I'll look twenty. I undo one button of the pajama top. I dislike basketball, but cannot help feeling indebted to the sport. It brings invitations into sacrosanct homes. It makes finding children effortless. They're almost impossible to locate during the night when they're tucked away in bed, safe inside inviolable houses. Children are so hard to find. I know this more than anything else. I've been searching for Mara for years and years. She's in this city. I feel it. In the afternoon, I dreamed of her. She was in a cold, white place with tubes latched onto her arms and machines crowded around her bed, watching, waiting. She was alone. The only ones who came into her room were cold, white people to look at the machines and poked the tubes. I screamed, waking myself. I must hurry, before a force more inescapable than gravity touches Mara, taking her away from me forever. I take a sip of the cub's life, swirling the rich, generous flavor around in my mouth. It's nicely accented by a note of sweetness, so refreshing after days of the bitter metallic taste of mature blood. I swallow. It caresses down my throat and becomes mine. I will redouble my search with its exquisite quickness. When I find Mara, I will share life's finest wine with her. Stan's and Bruce's homes are awaiting a visit from the Goliath's saviour. The rest of the players will rejoin the team once they hear about the Dean of Gravity. Among those returning will undoubtedly be married men with children. I'll share with Mara until she is nine years old and we can be father and daughter again. Then, finally, I'll be able to take a colour photograph of her, Many, many photographs, enough to fill the inside of the van, enough to replace the hundreds of photographs of the sleeping children who have so graciously, if unknowingly, succored me in my search for her. Our home will be lined with the sweet bloom of her smile. The cub's sleep has become uneasy. He mumbles, asking for his mother. I take another sip, and he hushes. Daddy's coming,
1: I whisper, smoothing the messy hair. Phil Void's Dean of Gravity, as read by Wilson Fowley. Wilson Fowley lives in Vancouver, Canada, with his wife and two children. By day, he programs computers for a living. By night, well, some evenings, he's the director of a community show, Chorus. And in the spare time he has left, he narrates stories for various podcasts. He intends to record a voiceover demo any day now. Really. Thank you, Wilson. Next up, we will be hearing from Sylvia Schultz's most recent edition of Lights Out. I've included a link in the show notes to her website, which I encourage you to visit to explore all of the dimensions of Sylvia's creativity. But for now, you will hear from her work with some of the not-quite-departed spirits at the Tinker Swiss Cottage.
2: And welcome to this episode of Lights Out. I'm your hostess with the mostest-ghostess, Sylvia Schultz. Illinois has many historic sites that are also paranormally active. This blend of the historic and the supernatural has always intrigued me. One of these crown jewels of our state is Tinker Swiss Cottage in Rockford, Illinois. The cottage was built by Robert Tinker and is an utterly gorgeous showplace of a home, nestled among the trees in a green bit of Rockford. I was privileged to give a lecture there in October 2014, and afterwards my audience and I were treated to a tour of the cottage, courtesy of Steve Litterell, the cottage's caretaker, and Ashley, a tour guide. Come along with us as we wander through all three floors of this magnificent building. We'll explore both the history and the hauntings of this Regal family home. Let's go, lights out.
0: We've through the whole basement already, all right, yes, you can tell. And I know I said don't sit on
4: anything or don't touch anything. This is the only room where nothing is original to the house. So this is all hands-on for our kids. When we have small school groups that come through here, they play in this room. Um, so one of the nice things about having a historic house, especially when it comes to ghosts, is the fact that everything in the house other than this room is theirs. We have our diaries, their clothing, their personal artifacts, everything that makes the house and everyone in it, we have all that stuff. So it's here. It's one thing to draw them here. Another thing is the fact that every single person who lived here, they did die in the house, along with a few extra relatives who came here too. So we have a lot of reasons for people to be here. And one of the fun things we actually got this summer is they were working on the railroad tracks over there, and they're like, did you get a, a ground?" keeper and we're like no we don't have a groundskeeper we have a Garner. have you seen him and they're like he dresses really nice he's in a suit the whole time with a bowler hat I'm like seriously that's awesome so it's not uncommon for us to actually hear stories like that of apparently Robert walking around I love hearing those it's entertaining So in this room, when you walk down here, um, what we've had, there's a group that comes through. It's called Ghost Head Soup. I love one guy. He looks like Biker Santa Claus. You know Yeah. Yeah. They're entertaining. They've been here so many times. And one thing that they found near the entrance over there is that they they thought they heard a kid, a voice. So then they started, they went out, bought a bunch of toys and were starting to play with them, and they, they stopped. There was nothing there. So then they went upstairs. They had a little bouncy ball that they left right near the doorway, and the ball rolled into the bedroom and stopped there. So when they came back here, they're like, why is the ball in this room? So you know, one thing when I'm like, watch the grain of the house when you come in here, there's no difference in elevation for a ball to roll all the way down there into the second room. So I loved hearing that part. And then one thing that they had is they had a camera crew and they wanted it to be as authentic as possible. So they didn't hire one of their own people. They actually hired somebody who knows how to take video. And you can see them because they came in here and they moved everything out of the way and they're playing duck, duck, goose with this imaginary thing. And you can see the camera going up and down. You can tell he's just cracking up because of how hilarious it is you're playing with something that's not there that might be there. Then all of a sudden you see like the camera flash around and you see it, like looking around him. So he says it's something like rush past him as he was playing. Yeah, so it's good. And the creepy thing though is that with Ghost Head Soup, they, um, he went to a conference and he was things have been acting weird at home. Like things were turning on, things were moving. So he was at a conference and there was somebody who can see the dead and he's like, who's the kid? Who's uh, the that you're follow or bringing with you? He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, there's something that's pretending to be a kid it's not a kid you need to take it back to wherever you got it so he came back here and dropped it off so yeah we love hearing that and every time that he comes here he sits in this room in the dark waiting to find the little kid demon that he found before it's lovely so the whole catch is um if you believe in it or don't actually if you don't believe into it please do this invite the little kid to go home with you You'll care for it take it out of here I would love that. Yeah, I don't actually believe in Demon Child, but it was entertaining to hear. Especially he's he's at end If you've met him, which you have, they're not the they believe it, but they're not like hardcore like yeah. Where they're like everything that
2: moves is spiritual.
4: So the fact that you have big biker Santa Claus like
2: they take it with a grain of salt.
4: (laughs) Yeah, they do. They're really good at proving things don't exist. So the fact that he was freaked out by Demon Child is awesome. All right, we're going to go up the stairs now, and we'll head into the kitchen, the second kitchen. You're the first kitchen. Okay. <laughs> oh, actually, before we go upstairs, I forgot one last thing. The bedroom that you saw down here, this is actually Robert Tinker's bedroom. Tiny little place, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That he moved down here um, around 1904, or something like that, that he was actually in a train accident, and he lost his left ankle. So it was over there that there was actually four train... Oh, God, four train, Four train tracks lined up. It was a switch train over there, and they were actually in the process of switching the trains over, and one of the switch cars actually hit a coal cart, and it was coming towards him. He saw it. Not a big deal. He stepped on the track, fell, landed on it, couldn't get up in enough time, and the coal cart grabbed him and pulled him and drug him along. Uh, when they found him, which his niece, Marcia saw it. She was upstairs in the window. His field hand, everyone there, the person in the coal cart saw the whole thing. They called the fastest ambulance. It was a six-horse wagon to come and take him to the hospital. As soon as he got there, the doctors weren't press He really had a few contusions. He unfortunately lost his eye, kind of popped out. And um, his ankle, it was all gnarled because it got stuck on the track. So they chopped it off. And uh, he spent a month in the hospital recovering. When he got out of the hospital, the doctors gave him a parting gift. They're like, here, here's your foot. We'll take it home with you. So he brought it home. He gave it to his gardener and he told the gardener, go bury it. Make sure it's a proper burial. So the gardener went out, dug a little hole, said a little prayer, buried the foot. Five years later, Robert's thinking that he's already in his 60s, that you know he might die at any time and he wants a feed in his casket. So he told the gardener go back out and dig it up. The gardener puts around came back. He's like, I can't find it. So he told that Robert where it was buried. He dug up the entire garden two different times looking for his dead king foot. Love it. The creepy thing though or gross thing is that we had two of the field hand's um, grandchildren that came here and they're like oh yeah, he told us that he threw it into the river and how the cart just went crazy eating at it. So we're not exactly sure what happened to it. So we think that he moved down here just because it's much easier to come around the outside like we did then to try to get up and down the second floor each day so plus that's around the time that he ended up adopting a son so at the age of 71 being a new dad he liked being down here it was quiet, so very peaceful <laughs> and his foot story comes into something in the future <laughs> <Okay. clears throat> oh. sci-fi with the sci-fi people I forgot that Ghost Hunters. Uh, ghost Hunters. I'm playing anyone. This is a bad game of charades. I <laughs> I'm worried about my forte sometimes. So everyone mentioned, is that everyone? The downstairs, the one thing that they found the door that popped open, it was right underneath the stairs there. Yeah, did anyone see it? People did. Sorry for the rest of you that didn't see it. So it popped open. We had to lock it up. Go ahead. Everyone can still fit in here. We can squeeze. We have a smaller group. So uh, everyone kept opening it, and it is a tiny little room under the stairs, so now it won't pop open anymore. And it's actually not uncommon when that door wasn't looking for it to just randomly pop open. That The whole house is supported on... um, pieces of brick. There's brick columns like this stationed every so many feet underneath the house. So you have that holding up all three floors. So even when you walk downstairs, you can feel other people moving along the floor with you. The door pops open. Yeah, I know. I had to just try to ghost hunter. Sorry about that. (laughs) Just that one because, I mean, it's a wooden house. Trust me. Sometimes we can't even close the doors. Other times when they shut nice. All right. So the room they're in right now, this is the serving kitchen. This is the main part of the house. Downstairs in the working kitchen and this floor and then upstairs the red room. This is the main area of the house. This was built in 1865. The rest of the house was added by 1870. Um, This one was mostly used for if you you didn't have guests, you ate your meals in this room. When you had guests or important events, you actually had it in the dining room. And they did have one audio clip, which I like. There's one group that comes to and What they like to do is set up all this audio and video. We shut off all the lights, we lock the door, and then we go to a four-hour dinner. It's fantastic. It's a really hard day. And then they come back, they pick up everything, and they leave. So, yeah, I like it. It's really hard on us. And one thing that they caught in this room was actually a man walking around whistling the whole time. It was nice. And it's not uncommon. You can be in different areas of the house. We've heard this from guests, other volunteers, even some of the old caretakers who used to live up in the red room. They're like, yeah, you'd hear a man's foot walking in the kitchen, sometimes opening and slamming the door. So, yes, love that. Don't know whose foot, since obviously Robert only had one. <laughs> uh, and in this room, this is the room where Jessie died. She was the second wife. She lived until 1942. So what happened was, in, I think it was in March or April, or May, one of those three months in 1942. I'm not very good with dates. I got the year. That's all that matters. Um, she was actually getting very old. They had a few of her friends who came over about the year, two years beforehand, and they're like, wow, you just cannot take care of yourself. She was at the age, she was 70 years old, and she was having a lot of problems taking care of this house, the upkeep of herself, everything. It was just getting kind of gross. She couldn't do it. So they'd actually have a live-in servant that would come here at least three or four days a week. So they'd spend the night, they'd take care of her, they'd clean the house, and then they'd go and stay with their family the other few days. Well, they walked in here one day and saw that she was laying on the floor. She'd had a stroke. So they Took her to the hospital the doctors were like you should be fine you can go ahead take her home just watch her carefully so the living servant stayed with her living nurse basically at that point stayed with her for the whole time three days later she went into a coma two days after that she actually died in this room and they said that one thing she had a dog at the time and they wouldn't let the dog go next to her after she went into the coma so for the next three months he kept scratching at the door trying to get in to see Jesse so
2: yeah
4: sorry I hope to point that
2: one out yeah. and why did she die in this Room. I mean, well, with this, this room, they
4: actually she was no longer able to really get up and down the stairs, and the bathroom's right here. So they actually just put a cot
2: or something. Yeah, they oh. had
4: like kind of a hospital bed in here. Plus, this room, for a long time, it actually, up until the 80s, it had a working refrigerator, um, stove, everything was up here, uh, and then it was turned into a caretaker's place. So the fact is that if she's not going to go very far, it's much easier to close out the rest of the house so that she doesn't worry about it, and then you have everything here. So basically, an efficiency apartment. Yes. And then um, I'll point out in this room, so going with our demon child thing, we had one person that came through here. Her name was White Turtle. Love the name, right? That's her Native American name. Let me tell you that her family was actually from Sweden. She was a first-generation American. So I don't know how she's Native American, but I loved it. (laughs) So she came through here, and it's not uncommon that we will have people that come through here and they're like, I'm an investigator. I'm spiritual. Give me money, and I'll find something for you. And she was one of those. Yeah, but our board member, one of them, thought that she was fantastic, and that we should give her a try. She was creepy and weird, and I loved it with some of the stuff that she did. Oh, I'll tell you in different rooms. Some people I believe are authentic. She was not. She was hilarious, though. <laughs> so in this room, one thing that she does is she likes to commune with the spirits. So she's like, I'm feeling them. I'm feeling them. <laughs> and she'll usually stand like that for a few minutes, and we're all like, mm, you okay? <laughs> Okay, and she's like, "I just closed your demon portal." I'm like, or what? What do we have going on in here? She's like, "Yes, it's a demon portal over this vector, and I feel it." And so she was in this room and closed our demon portal. So who knows what we have. And now we have demon child and demon portal and all this fun demon stuff going around. So, yeah, I love her. I'll tell you some of the other fun stuff that she had. And part of it was the fact that she just saw random things and she did it. Especially now that we have Robert Tinker's diaries that have been published. We're getting a lot of these people. And they're like, on this date I did. And we're like, wait, just let me pull that up real quick. And we're like, oh, of course you had it on that day. I had it too in a published book. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you always gotta be wary of the the ponies, as you know. Yeah, with people where everything's paranormal. Mm -hmm. We'll go ahead and head into our sitting room the whole point of this room is it's basically your family room. So you did anything in here. If you want to um, read books, write letters, take your tea, do your sewing, even naps in the afternoon, this is the room that you did it. And for the fact that when you were inside, you spent about 80% of your time in this room, that most investigators have never caught a single thing in this room at all. For how much time people were in here? Nothing. Nada. I like it. The only thing that they did say that they caught is this light fixture here, which was a crapshoot when they put it back together, we rewired it, that the lights will start to flicker, they'll go out. I think somebody, when I first walked in the room, I had to flick one of the lights to get it to come back on. Yeah, so they're like, oh my god, it's a sign. Or we're like, no, it's just faulty wiring. <laughs> yeah. So a few things in this room, though, that we do have. Um, if you see where the wall paint and the ceiling paint ends, and kind of where this thicker dark line is, that this was originally the size of the room. That when Robert married Marion, acquired four of the relatives, he decided that 80% of their time this small of a space wasn't worth it. So they added an extra 10 feet uh, and added a door to get out to the conservatory so that he can escape when he needs to. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. Um, before we go to the next room, I'll point out the big frames, the pictures into them. Aren't they fun? Do you like how the eyes stare at you wherever you go?
2: Yeah.
4: <laughs> yes, it has a kind of ominous feature to the cottage. This actually belongs to Mary. This is her uncle, and that's her great-grandmother. This is called folk art. And one of the most important things with the paintings were the fact of the eyes. You wanted to get those right. You wanted to make it actually feel like there was depth to it, which is why they follow you. Um, But what he would do is actually go to the different towns. He'd solicit people. And as soon as you wanted to buy a painting, he'd come and draw the body. And then he'd come and visit you and actually put on the face, which is one reason why his head is shrunken and kind of falls into it. (laughs) So, kind of entertaining. And then we do have some pictures of Mary. This is about when she was 60, 70. It's not a morning picture. And then we have Robert when he's older. So this is usually the image of the guy that everyone says that they see is him walking around in a nice suit with a little bowler hat on throughout the cottage and the grounds you, uh, I forgot to mention this before we get in here, if you feel anything that feels really cool, you're like it'll all send a cool breeze or something like that, let me know. A lot of our registers are on the ground, and year-round we pump out humidity, so it always feels cold. We've had a lot of people that are like, no, seriously, it's cold right here. And we're like, yes, it should be. It down. <laughs> and if you smell different scents, let me know. We do have scents in the house. This idea that if you activate everything, then you're more likely to remember different things. So if you smell apple pie or cigars, I can tell you which rooms those should be in <laughs> alright so one reason that we stopped here is the fact that we've had a variety of different things that have happened in this space so with the front doors we've had some of our volunteers that have said that they've actually heard footsteps coming through here a woman laughing and then just vanishes and one thing about this house if you walk out the doors any of the doors at all they automatically lock behind you we wanted to make sure it was a safety feature so when you're in here the only way you get in is by key and there's only like two or three of us that are here at any given time so obviously you would know if one of us was here walking around so I love that one. Or my favorite lately, what we just had is I wasn't the one that was giving the tour, but there was another person. They had kids; they're about like five and three years old. They're walking up the steps, and all of a sudden, both of them turn and they're like, "Hi, Mr. Tinker!" and just kept on walking. <laughs> so that was awesome. And the, so the just stopped. They're like, "What? what are you, let's come back down here." And they're like, "Oh well, yeah, Mr. Tinker's in the doorway," and he just said, "Hi to us," and said who he was. So we said, "Hi, Mr. Tinker," and gone upstairs now.
2: So.
1: I love that. I love the
4: kids. They creep me out all the time. All right, and then um, upstairs, the red room that you can see at the very top of the stairs, that's actually the caretaker's quarters. But from about the um, 50s on, they had a lot of problems with people either trying to break in here or do something. So they wanted to make sure that somebody was living on site, especially to maintain the old house. And every single time that they had some, the the people weren't exactly the best caretakers in the world. Like, there was one wife who thought it would be fantastic to put on all the Victorian clothes. So she put on the she had on the little corset. She was reaching over to put on the the, um, the blouse, and she felt something kick her in the butt and throw her into the pile of clothes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like that. And they actually had one caretaker that was here. He was walking downstairs. He saw this black shadow come through here. It walked into that room. He went upstairs, packed up his bag, left a forwarding, message, and never came back again. Yeah. I still haven't seen the black shadow. I want the shadow. I want something. So those are the fun things. And then in the next few rooms, you'll see we have it decorated for mourning culture. Obviously, all the mirrors are covered from here to the next room. The idea was is that when the spirit can use the body, Sometimes it can become trapped in the mirror, so you want to cover them. You don't want them to be stuck in a mirror and be a mirror person. Plus, they thought that if you see the person in the mirror, then you'd be the next to die. And also, it's morning time. If you look disheveled and horrible, that's best because, obviously, somebody just died. If you look perfect, you're doing it wrong. All right. And I don't think, yeah, there's... Now of course he's still in the city or library. Can I sneak into the other room without him knowing? Maybe. I guess we'll talk a little bit about the house since we're stuck in this room a little bit longer. So with the walls, the paint on here is called Trumploy. It's called to trick the eye. Everything's paint. So the little window boxes, that's all just paint. The crown molding up there, also paint. Lovely, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We actually have in Robert's diaries where it took two Italian immigrants five dollars or two weeks to complete, and he painted it five dollars a piece. So not bad for ten bucks, right? And then on the walls, you know, we showed the patriarchs of the family. So the one on the left is Josephus. This is Robert's in-law. This is actually a charcoal drawing that he did himself of Josephus. That um, he overheard Mary and Josephus talking about how he never had a portrait done of himself. He didn't like the way that he looked. He didn't want people to mess it up. He thought he was kind of ugly. So Mary's like, no, you're a prominent person. You need to have this done. Robert overheard. He went to their house and he saw the little photograph of Josephus. It's a little daguerreotype. It's about this big. One of the oldest photographs you can have taken in Victorian times and he stole that from that little daguerreotype he then drew this picture of Josephus and then after a party he snuck back into the doorhouse with this picture and hung it onto the wall with a little note of who had done it um, and then the next day Josephus and Mary came down the stairs and they saw this she thought that it was just fantastic he too he went over there and thanked him he was almost in tears because of how good he made him look and Mary actually paid him fifty dollars because it was the first time that he'd actually smiled after his wife just Joseph- or no not Joseph Josephine, sorry, after his wife passed away. So it was very sweet. And then the next one is Reverend Reuben Tinker. This is Robert's father. He was a missionary. And um, the way that it worked back then is you had to be married. So what he did before you could start your missionary work. So what he did is he graduated from college. The next hour he got up and he gave his first sermon. He walked down from the sermon. An hour later he was married. Two weeks later they were on a boat to Hawaii. So pretty quick back then, right? Mm-hmm. He knew his wife for about four years. He was, She was a student. But there's only like four years apart between them. So it wasn't like creepy studentish. ish not, not like now. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then with um, they spent about ten years in Hawaii. And Ruben was thinking we have four kids. There's another one on the way. We could probably have more kids. And that I just can't give them a good upbringing in Hawaii when I'm too busy focused on the natives. So they moved into Westfield, New York. Ruben was. They were there for about ten years. And uh, he got very sick. They found out that it was actually cancer of the leg. So they chopped off his leg. And um, about a month after that, he actually gave his first sermon. And everyone's trying to give him. Charity and stools and everything he's like no no I'm, I'm, I know how to do this I'm a pastor so he got up there and he preached for three hours on if thy leg it, then they cut thee off we actually have the sermon it's hilarious it was pretty good <laughs> unfortunately they didn't cut off all the cancer it had spread before that so about a year later he passed away of that which left Robert at 14 which you can tell from his diary entry he was not happy about it he's like if he knew he was dying he would have called us down here he would have talked to us first he didn't he died in the middle of the night and he knew it was Wasn't coming. So you can see he was just really upset that his his dad died and he didn't get his final words with him. All right, I think it's enough time we can head into the parlor. Let's shove him into the dining room. This
2: door?
4: Yes, that door. All right, we'll wait till they push. Go ahead, come on in. Head into our parlor. So is the pink? Currently. That original it is original okay. um we can see in all the rooms is everything is original uh in this room and especially in the dining room when you get there you'll see that there's cracks in the ceiling like here there's a huge crack um, that this, the chandeliers are just really heavy it started pulling the plaster down with it but we had a really great group of designers who came and they restored all of it so you really can't see much of it but that's the only thing that they touched without paint so come on in, I'll shut this door behind us maybe we'll hear somebody walking and laughing behind us I would love that. Too bad we didn't have our, our pregnant educator here. She would totally do it. So she can't waddle all the way fast enough. <laughs> Alright, so is our little funeral setting that we have here. Yes, unfortunately Mary has passed away the se- the first wife. Um, part of it, once somebody passed away, you take any picture that they had and you cover it with a black crate. This way it signifies this is a person. Uh, you actually were not allowed to attend any funerals unless you had a handwritten invitation inviting you. And they're actually lined in black um, Thank <laughs> you black stenciling or something around the side, so you knew that you were actually invited to a funeral. Uh, and then when you came in here, same, some of the same things happen today. Like the flowers that you'd actually have on the casket would be from the closest relatives, so in this case it should say, like, a loving wife with the streamer hanging down from it. Same thing we do today. Then you'd have, like, the loving sister on the side and everything farther away. So some of the things that we still do today, they did in the Victorian times. Um, and then usually they'd actually have things that would signify what you're supposed to do. So like if um, they have wreaths that they put outside and some other things and the coloring signified something so the whole black wreath that actually meant that somebody of older age passed away it was okay. They had their full life. If it was black and white, then it was to signify that somebody in the middle of their prime of their life had passed away. It was mostly white with a little bit of black, then that meant a baby that died. So all the different colors actually signify different things. And when it came to mourning, if you were a female, you actually were required to wear black for the first year of mourning. All black can't be colorful. has to be very dull. The second year, you can actually start adding color, and then it has to be darker, but you can still add some color, some glistening to it, for two years. You're in mourning for, like, if your husband dies. For a guy, it's about six weeks. <laughs> it's going to be worn black. <laughs> if you have brown, that's also acceptable. <laughs> yes. And I know it's, okay, it's so sad, but it's kind of adorable. Like, if you died shortly after giving birth and you had a child, they'd actually dress the child up in mourning outfits, which was a white christening gown, basically. And on the bottom of it, it would be hemmed in black, and then they'd have little black armbands on. Know, it just And The armbands are just so cute. I know it's sad. They're in mourning. But it's so
2: cute.
4: All right. So in this room, the whole point of it is to show off your money and your status. Everything's supposed to convey it so that when you come in here, you don't be like, hey, do you know how much money I have? <laughs> so that's one reason for the art on the ceiling and the walls, the silent panel, the marble fireplace, even the way the windows are arched in the stained glass in the main window. And if you notice the corners in this room they're all rounded. There's two reasons for it. The first reason is that it took so much time and money to round a corner. It's an easy way to show stairs status without actually having to decorate the walls. isn't all the walls. The second reason is that this is the room where they'd actually have funerals. We had at least seven funerals in this room that we know of. Um, so the idea is the spirit would eventually leave the body, but it's not sure when it would actually go. So they'd actually, when it left, it would be bouncing around because it's scared. It doesn't know what's going on, and it's trying to find a hiding spot. So it would bounce into the walls and then obviously there is no corner so it would keep bouncing until it finally leaves and hopefully go somewhere else. And then when it comes to a funeral uh, you're required to sit with the body. Three days and three nights somebody had to be there. Part of this was the fact that they were figuring out that they were kind of burying people when they weren't dead yet. So kind of like the cemetery that we had out there, they picked it up and they relocated it but sometimes when they were doing that they opened the caskets and they'd see scratch marks on the inside there are a lot of things to indicate people weren't dead. So you just sit there and you watch it. So, like, if Granny was in there and you're like, oh, shoot, she flipped over. Let's get her out before she realized we are going to bury her. <laughs> yeah. So, that was kind of common. The whole dead ringer, that whole concept came from the Victorian times. They'd actually tie a little string to your finger, they'd cut a hole through the casket, and it would be on top of the ground. So, then there'd be a little ringer attached to it, and this way, if you woke up in the coffin, in the ground, you'd start flailing around because you're freaked out, and the little bell would go. So, the person who's in the graveyard would actually see the bell, like, going back and forth, and like, quick, i got to go grab my shovel before they run out of air. So, yeah, exciting, right? My favorite story that I heard of is during the Revolutionary War, there was one American who was kidnapped. Can't remember his name, very prominent citizen. He was held in the Tower of London. When he was over there, his biggest fear was actually of having his head chopped off, uh, to be expected. I mean, it's the Tower of London. And then he he was finally released. They wanted to be really nice to him because they're like, if we lose the Revolution, then we don't want this American to be mad at us. We want some type of good connection with America. So when he, he was released, he came back here, he worked well with the British, and the first thing that he did when he got here was write up his will. So one thing he wrote is that when he died, he wanted somebody to chop off his head when he was buried. This way it can guarantee that he was going to be dead in the grave because he didn't want to worry about being buried alive. Lovely, isn't it? <laughs> and then the person that we know that passed away in this room was actually Robert Tinker. That um, After he lost his leg, he, last, he lived for about another 23 years. So, a very long time. Um, but they had a problem with the prosthetics back then that they weren't exactly the best. And if you didn't get the rubber switched out long, quickly enough, you started developing gangrene. So, he had that and it went through his bloodstream. It was pretty bad. Um, so, they put up a hospital cot in this room. And they actually called their adopted son Teddy. He was up in uh, Lake Geneva at a military academy. <laughs> And they're like, you need to come home. Your father's not going to make it. This was in like October. So he came home, and he was asking, talking to his mom, Jesse, the doctors, and they're like, look, he, you might want to say your goodbye. He's not going to make it through the end of October. It's just a guarantee. And Robert overheard him. He's like, no, no, no. I came in on December 31st. So I'm going to go out on December 31st. And I was like, whatever you say. Just then they kept telling Teddy to like say your goodbyes. in here, Thanksgiving came and passed. He's still, still in this room, and they're like, what the? So then December came. And Teddy was actually helping the nurse that it was time to change his sheets and his bedding and everything like that. So he actually picked up Robert Tinker and the nurse was changing the sheets and that's actually how he died. It was in his son's arms. Aww. So, that's the collective all I was looking for. Yeah. And there's a left I was looking for afterwards. So we know that one. Um Alright, so if you want to head into the... Oh, wait, before we go in there, I'll talk about one more thing. The, this right here, the beaded piece, it's actually a folded tabletop. There's 300,000 beads in there in the shape of a guardian angel holding a baby. We know that Hannah did this. When it comes to domestic abilities, Hannah, Mary's sister, was the best at everything. I mean, you name it, she was just talented. So they believe, which we still haven't proved, is that she made this for Jesse. That's Usually everyone who come here on a regular tour, they say Jesse her Doerhertinger, hoping all the names confuse you. But Robert ended up raising or marrying uh, Mary's niece the one that got older. So that's why they don't they don't want the family drama though. But when she was married to Mister Guy, I heard there's a rumor going around that she actually had a baby son that died shortly after birth, and that Hannah wanted to make a memory, a token for him. So that's why they had the guardian angel holding the baby for him. All right. So let's head into. Oh you guys like this room? Best room in the house. If you've ever been here, oh, that door can stay open so then she can hear. Um, if you've ever been here, this is the room that you remember. Because who doesn't like it? If you look at the floor and the balcony and the ceiling, do you like how this is like an octagon-shaped room? Mm-hmm. Actually, it's yeah. everything is designed to give it an illusion of eight sides, even though there are only four in this
2: room.
4: And the beautiful spiral staircase this is actually one piece of walnut that was burned and steamed over an inch a day for two and a half years to get it into this beautiful spiral shape. And uh, this is actually the second attempt after the first year on the first attempt, it didn't go right. They, they had to start over. And then with each step from top to bottom, it's carved. It's the same design, but each one would have taken about a month to do. And the way that they would have done it is basically it's a jigs- uh, stationary bike with a jigsaw on top, The fast you pedal with great cuts and that's how you would have made this. So it really was a labor of love. And then in this room the whole point is to show off how worldly and educated you are. That's uh, that's the whole point of this. So on each side of the guest orbs there's two different images. Everyone's different. There's Cleopatra, Da Vinci, King Henry Eighth, some of the famous painters during the Renaissance. On the far wall these are famous painters during the Renaissance and some of the famous paintings. In our library there's about a thousand books even though they're about 3,000 total for the collection. And with this room, when it comes to the paranormal, that's, um, they've caught a few audio clips of, it sounds like a girl that says, I don't like trains, trains bring death, and they hear it over and over again, and it's great, because it was actually Steve and the lady, and they're upstairs, and she's like, do you realize every single time a train comes by in this room, that it just feels different, it's, it has like this pressure to it, and he's over here, it's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it was also like three o'clock in the morning, you really didn't care what was going on as long as they were getting ready to leave. And then they went back and listened to the tape, and that's what they heard, in the background is, I don't like trains, trains bring death. So when it comes to the trains and the trains bring death, that that window up there was actually the one that Marsha was looking at when her Uncle Robert actually fell and slipped and was run over by the train tracks. Uh, We also know that right outside with the trains over there, after the First World War, that the Spanish influenza hit, and it hit Rockford pretty hard. There are about 50,000 people that the city lost, and yeah, so it was pretty bad. And the fact that the train station was here, they would actually line up bodies. I guess it was so bad, like if you had a cold garage they just stack people in there until they could deal with it, just because how bad it was. And so over there they'd actually have caskets lined up with markers on them if you are supposed to go east or west north or south. And that just happened for weeks upon weeks of these bodies sitting out there. So if somebody's saying they don't like trains, trains bring death, obviously you got that. And then onto all the wood beams around the room, beautiful art detail, isn't it? These actually came from the inside of passenger train cars. When they were decommissioned Robert and his field hand actually went there and ripped out all of these panels and stuck them in here. So it was kind of a going green initiative before it became popular. But the, the problem with it, though, is the only real reasons why they decommissioned passenger train cars is usually if they had some accident. And usually when there was an accident, that usually meant somebody died. So there you go. A few reasons why trains bring death. And one thing that I do like, actually kind of hate, we had one investigator that came in here, and what he likes to do is he makes people angry. He believes that. That the angrier their spirits are, the more they're going to interact, and in then that's great, because you get something. So what he did for everything is he put little pennies all over the place. And the idea is that when they get angry, they'll throw a penny. Because it's it's not a lot of energy to move it, and it's just enough that you'll be able to notice if something goes and rolls around. So he's in here and he's yelling about uh, you know, Jesse and Mary and the first and second wives and their husbands and all this other stuff, and trying to pin different people against each other. So then you'd hear a bunch of knocking upstairs in the red room which is one room we just had restored. And then everyone would run up there because obviously it's a small investigation. Everyone wants to be where the action is. And then they'd go up there and he'd do the same thing and then and then they hear things knocking around down here. So we'd run down here. And then it kept happening and about after half an hour he's like, you know what? they're just too stupid. They don't know how to do anything like this. We should just go and and that's actually when they say a penny flew off and hit him. So love that. And if you guys want to leave pennies around, I find them. I find them when I clean and I found so many in the past few years. <laughs> I'm like, And then I fly them off. I'm like, oh, somebody listened to that story and put out a penny. So, yeah. Otherwise, they don't really move, I don't think. Okay. So, ready to go into our library? Or, sorry, we're in the library. Into our dining room?
2: Okay. So, you clean this...
4: Yeah, area. unfortunately, yeah, I'm, I don't have to
2: vacuum and mop, but I have to dust. There's yeah. Yeah. a lot of Being
4: the curator is every month I get to dust everything. So everyone uh, just pretend it looks very cool. <laughs> like, you can come during a general tour, you actually get information about the family and stuff like that. Don't talk too much about the family on Paranormal. I have a student that if you want to know about the lace and the table, which is weird, or about the paintings. You'll come back on a regular tour. So in this room, they haven't had a lot that have happened. The only thing that they did do though is they have a party in here, and they actually brought a Ouija board. It's exciting. Yeah, as you're like, Ugh. I don't like the whole idea of Ouija boards. Uh-uh. Not very much. So they actually recorded it, and you can actually watch it on YouTube if you want. When I saw that, I'm like, no, 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 <sighs> we're done. So. So we actually got a band put on that. Yes. So yeah, that made me happy just a little bit. So in this room there isn't so much that really happens. box out books flying around. Alright, so one thing I'll talk about in this room is some of the the Victorian paranormal. So usually when it became popular, you'd like to go there and you'd actually ask about the different people that have died, of course. And some of the tricks that they'd actually do, especially they'd like to do it in dining rooms, is they'd actually built in a fake wall so they'd have somebody hiding behind there. And this way they'd hear knocks on different walls because it's just the skinny little kid that's going around pounding when it's says Q. Certain words would be the cue. Or my favorite is they'd actually cut holes in the table and have like candles set up so that when it's your turn or something they'd actually have a person under the table that would grab the the candle wick from it and pull it out so it's not their cow though obviously the ghost was here to speak to you so obviously these kind of things people kept coming back to you again and again because stuff happens every single time Or some of the good ones would actually send private investigators to follow you around and get some information about your family, about the history that you had, so then, when you came there, you knew that this person actually had details on you. So a lot of the things were that people didn't like that, especially some police, some investigators, because they didn't think it was fair. You're tricking people that just want to see their family again. So, they weren't exactly very pleased. Uh, but it is highly entertaining. I would love the snuff candle. That was, when I heard about that, I'm like, yes. <laughs> so, or they'd have stuff that would be like pins. So, like if you were behind the wall, there'd actually be like a book. And you'd actually hit a lever, and then the book would fly off. So, things are soaring across the room, you name it. Very terrifying. I mean, it's better than a haunted house. Obviously, it is a haunted house. The one thing I'll point out did anyone ever hear the Winchester house? <laughs> yes, good. I got a few of these. For those that don't know, the Winchester, wife, was so upset and afraid that her husband created the Winchester rifle. And she believed that anyone who died by that rifle could come back and haunt her and, I don't know, possibly kill her, I guess, something like that. Yeah, so she built this house, and the whole idea is that it's illusion. So there are doors that go nowhere, there's stuff that leave nowhere. It's just it's this fun, weird house where you get stuck in different areas. And it's to trip the spirits, because apparently we aren't very smart when we die. So our house we have one fake area. It's that door right there. You can open it, you can up outside if you want. The catch is that you're on the second floor right now, so there's a good drop. Yes, lovely isn't it? Um, So that's one of those catches. The idea is that the spirit would drop, it would fall out of that door because it can't see that there's nowhere else to go and then it can't flow like Casper and it doesn't know any other ways to get back inside the house. So you rid yourself of some spirits by opening the door. Yeah, great, right? Again, we're really dumb when we die. Again, we don't know about windows or other doors. We're, just, we're still trying to get into that door. Yeah. I guess um, there's one culture that I love the best, that when we die, they actually bury you into the forest and they mark an X above your tree, obviously to signify the grave. But every few feet, they'll write another X on another tree. They'll do this all the way around in a circle. The idea is when the spirit would come up, would see the X, it knows that it's trying to find its way home. So it would keep going to the next tree, find another X, and keep going until it continues that circle for all of existence. Because it doesn't realize it's just in a giant circle.
2: Mm -hmm.
4: Again, so when we die, we become pretty dumb. (laughs) All right. And let's see now, do we, oh, um, I don't know if we have any more white turtle stories other than, all right, yeah, there we go. We had one where she came in. So I'll point out these dishes here. You can see every single one is different. There's 300 in this set. It's the first set between John and Mary Manning, so Robert's first wife before she married him. And everything is different except for a single pink rose. It's her favorite flower. Even in the parlor, there's a bunch of roses that does a border in there. That's also because that's what she wanted. He put geometric designs up, she's like, no, I got the cash, you change it. So, he did. And uh, when White Turtle came into here, she, like, interrupted the one person who was giving to her. She's like, oh, I got something to say. And I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. So, she's standing there, she's like, Mary's favorite flowers are daffodils. At that time, we had a huge bunch of them growing in front of the house. Makes sense, right? And so, we're like, yeah, even the painting in there, the one with the crayon, she surrounded her by roses, most of them pink, her favorite colors. Go White Turtle. <laughs> yeah. so not saying we don't have some fun things but that's got to be my favorite is what, Okay, we are going to go to the top of the stairs the room is dark if anyone wants to go their first the light switch is on the left side either that or just walk in there and stay in the middle and I'll be up there in a second to turn on the lights yes I mean, All right. uh, the you can hear this part of the house right now um, when this was the one room's cottage and Robert was going like 10 years before he got married, no, five, five years before he got married, this was the master bedroom. After he was done in here, did his father and mother see this? He did his bedroom. They see with the windows that are right over there. That Josephus was on his deathbed, and he was very upset because Mary's mansion was on the other side, and she had beautiful gardens, and he was upset that he couldn't see them. So Robert actually carved out the second window and put it in there, so that he and he actually carved the hole in the roof over there too, so that he could actually see to the other side and had something nice to look at before he died. Damn. Sorry, so, seems to be Are we north? Are we in the Yes, this is north. Yeah. All right, then after this was used by Josephus, it seemed to be like uh, just a guest bedroom. For anyone who came here, they stayed here. Unfortunately for half the people that came here and stayed here, they ended up dying here at the same time. <laughs> so we had uh, Marsha and Jesse. Those were the two nieces that came here. The father came here for a trip. He was going out to Colorado. When he got here, he wasn't feeling well. A few days later, he passed away in the house. Um, there was an aunt, same thing. She was going out to the East Coast. She came, stayed in this room. She died in this room. So kind of creepy and not very good luck on any of them. Uh, after that happened, then this became a maid's quarter. So their bedroom was back there, and this was a living space. Usually, Robert and Mary like to hire families, at least a husband and wife team, so that they'd be the same inside person, the same outside person, and that they didn't have to worry about getting them multiple spaces or anything else. So it was a very nice space for two servants. Unfortunately, everyone just kept dying here. Mm All
2: right. So
4: what happened up there? Up here. That This is one room since they had the caretakers that lived here, and after it became a museum, we also had caretakers who lived here, and they kept painting the walls. So we stripped off the walls, and this is actually what we found underneath. Uh, when we found it, we're like, this is weird, but this is actually the first paint layer. This is what it looked like when Robert was a bachelor. Strange, right? It goes with our Hawaiian theme. Mm-hmm. It really does, because this funny border all the way around is actually the same one that's on the coconut shell over there in the corner. So it's an idea of using things in your collection to help paint or create color schemes and ideas. And red and horn culture also a very prominent, powerful color. So kind of a fun thing. All right, and then in this room they actually did some investigations. Some um, just anyone can come investigations. They had like usually two or three investigators who'd be here, and every time that they do anything, they finish in this room. This is one we're in the process of restoring it, which took months because we couldn't find the right color red. It felt so girly then. We're like, no, it's still off. Keep trying. <laughs> Anyways, so everyone would finish here, and the fun thing is, is that at two o'clock in the morning, every EMF detector that we had, it was always like bacon, eggs, breakfast, lunch, and. It's it's kind of like what you expect servants to be talking about, like preparing a morning breakfast. So it was kind of fun. And then this is also the room when the guy liked to make people angry. This is the room that you would hear a bunch of stuff. And they said that there were two people. They're a little bit older and they were tired of running back and forth. So they decided to sit up here. They got a little winded and they swear that they heard somebody say, they're like, just stop and they'll go away. So, yes.
2: Gotta
4: love it. All right, so the next. Oh, they're in the master bedroom. Okay, we'll go to the first bedroom over here. Who are these two? And that's actually Robert and Mary. That this is a picture that Robert did, a charcoal drawing that he's about 17 and show is married. They were actually married when he was 35 and she was 42, so he wanted to show a young and impressionable age that they were allowed to be married at if they had met that young. Oh so, a lovely couple. Yeah, and it was so nice. But this guy I would totally take him as a husband I mean he like did travel drawings for your anniversary he's like here this is a beautiful image of you do you like it hey I created this wonderful furniture piece would you like this as your anniversary yes. yeah. <laughs> hey let's go to Hawaii for a honeymoon anyone up yeah again I take him it's okay minus the fact that he lost all his teeth by the time he was 35 yeah. I still am kind of okay with it <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, right now, the two rooms, this this is actually called a bedroom suite. Now, you know most Victorian homes don't have closets in them. It's just because you were taxed by every room in your house that had a door. So, people can't see the point in spending money in this tiny, itty-bitty room that you can't really utilize. So, to get around it, he made it big enough that you have the bedroom here, the closet here, and the closet can be utilized for anything. The women, when they lived here, this was their sewing room. And in our little closet, there's actually a tiny little closet. He didn't care. After he finished building the houses, he he knocked closets into everything. There are actually five on this floor, three in the main floor, and three in the basement. Yeah, he was okay with it. He's like, what are they going to do? But even like when he was Mayor Rockford, he got arrested. So, yeah, arrested and fine, because he was building a poor man's sidewalk, which back then meant a plank sidewalk, and you weren't allowed to in Rockford. They ruled that out because they thought that that was very cheap looking, and they wanted to make the town look very nice and pristine. So they took care of that, and he was putting in the wood sidewalk, and a police officer came up, and he was like, you can't do this. This is a Against the law. He's like, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> so he went back to city hall. I came back. He's like, I got to arrest you. So he's like, all right, go ahead. So I took him downtown. He spent the day in jail. He paid his fine. He came back. And they're like, now you have to tear it up. He's like, no, no, I don't. It's my sidewalk. I can do what I want. So they actually sent some of the city employees to come up and rip up the sidewalk and actually pay to actually put down a nice cement sidewalk for him. Because in his mind, he's like, it's my sidewalk. The city doesn't, the city didn't own it back then. So he's like, why do I have to pay for something? I don't want to put in. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. I love reading those articles. Mayor Rockford arrested. <laughs> Makes you feel good about the. Well, yeah, you know, everyone in <laughs> re- Illinois gets arrested. Why not,
2: yeah?
4: <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so with the, the little sewing room here, one thing about the group that like to put the audio recorders and leave for a few hours, then in this room they caught something. They said that it sounded like a woman was in here and she was sewing. You can hear at the beginning of the clip where people are coming into the house and uh, you can hear them downstairs. They're talking. They're like, well, where. The light switches, so we know that they're right downstairs because so everything's on a timer down there. And you can hear the song up here, and it was kind of fun. Is that there's this lady who came to the paranormal tour, and we played the clips for that time. Unfortunately, the group went under and they took all their clips and they refused to let us use them now. Yay, <laughs> it sucks. Anyways, so and the lady's like, yeah. I know that song, my mom used to sing it to me all the time when I was a kid. It was apparently an Irish lullaby, so that somebody was up here singing That's Nice, right? I like that. <laughs> Alright, other than that, they really haven't caught much in there. This is actually Mary's bedroom, we call it that. Obviously, we don't know who spent which time where, but we're pretty sure that this is Mary's bedroom, especially when she died. That she was about 72 years old, and for the last 20, 30 years of her life, she was really sick all the time. We're not sure what it was, or if you're just like, I don't feel well, I just want to stay in bed today, type sickness. But in all of Robert Tinker's diaries, she's like, Mary's sick in bed again. So, she caught the influenza at age 72, and she never recovered. So they think that this is the room that she actually passed away in. Yes. And then I'll talk about Hannah, because we're not sure where she died, but it was really sad. In Robert's Diaries, he talks that the doctors that came in, it first started like every few weeks, and they just took fluid from her, gallons of fluid. Then it was every week, then it was like every few times a day. It was just really gross. And nobody really knew what had happened. She actually said that she wanted to have an autopsy done, which back then, you never cut up the body unless well, you were a doctor and you had just one lying around. So being a prominent citizen, you were going to be cut. But she wanted to, because she was sure that whatever the doctors could find would help other girls not die from whatever she had. Um, From the diaries and medical examiner's report, it sounds like she had stage 4 breast cancer, and that's actually how she passed away. So, kind of sad. So we are still stuck in here. Uh, I'll point out when you guys come into this room that there's two images on the wall here. Those are photographs. This is actually what the train station used to look like when it was Mary's limestone mansion. And then the picture on the farm wall is actually the gardens that she had. Again, the five acres, ten acres, beautiful, tranquil lands. Lovely. And since we're still stuck in here, I'll point out this other picture above the bed. This is actually a picture from the Hawaiian Islands that Robert and Mary had it commissioned after they came back there. Their four months or four-week honeymoon in Hawaii. Do you like the snow-capped mountain volcano thingy? It's kind of hard when you explain what Hawaii looks like with volcanoes when people have never been there, especially the painters. So you're like, it's like a mountain, but it has red lava stuff coming out of it. So we got a mountain with red lava stuff coming out of it. (laughs) And uh, with that though, it sounds magical. Four weeks, beautiful Hawaiian islands. Uh, Yes, but he made it, changed it a little bit. That his mom came, her sister came, they spent a week together before he got on a boat with a bunch of natives and left out. So magical. But honestly, I'd be on his side, too. I would have left. I would have left even sooner. I would have gone. Um, just because by the time they got to Hawaii, it was already a one-month honeymoon on a uh, train, and then another month of a honeymoon on a whaling boat getting there. So two months combined space, three women. You really can't blame Mom. And then he kept coming back. So he'd leave them for a little bit, go have fun, climb some mountains, slide out and stuff, and then he'd come back and like go to church with them. And then he'd leave, and he'd go canoeing to another island and come back and go to church with them. <laughs> Seriously, that's like all he did when he came back to see him. Apparently, church was good in Hawaii. All right, so we can open the door and we will go to the very right into the master bedroom. Is that, is
3: that been original?
4: All right, I can tell you like library. <laughs> yeah. is that library. Yeah. that Walk right from the bedroom right in the library. You got it? It's very nice. I mean, for a master bedroom for Victorian standards, this is awesome. This is one of
0: the cigar rooms because last time I was here, I smelled cigar smoke.
4: No, actually, it's not. (laughs) No, (laughs) it's Nice. I like that. Okay, come on in. Close this door so we can. Steve. He's just a little bit louder than I am. Something to do with being ex-captain in the military it makes him louder. <laughs> Alright, so for this room, um, obviously the master bedroom, this is where Robert stayed for most of his life. They do have, if you have, not the EMF though, the one with the, the electronic thing that beeps when you see mm. that thing? Uh, What's that?
2: Ghost radar. Yeah, ghost radar. Um, it's, it's another EMF detector. Yeah,
4: one of those. Well, a lot of people come in here and they're like, oh my god, it's going up. It spikes everywhere And they're like What kind of electricity Do you have going to this room The only thing we have Is that light fixture up there So it actually comes down the wall Goes behind the frame And goes straight down But they'll be over here Against that wall And they're like What is this I can feel it So I love Yeah that thingy Ghost meter so, yeah, that one goes off. And in the library, there's a plug-in on the firewall. Only thing in that room, too. So, like, when people come in here or, like, especially when we we'll do investigations and they'll have the flashlights, every single time they're in this room, they tend to, like, go out. It's kind of creepy. Even I was in here. I'm like, come on. I don't know what's going on, but I was wrong. I know my way better than anyone. All right. So, in this room, you can look into the, the balcony, the second floor of the library, and see that room. Um, I'll talk a little bit about how the house is here today, that a lot of it came from Mary's first husband, John Manny. that he had a lot of money and it's because of his invention of Manny Reaper and this picture is actually out there on the wall it's right over here, it's actually a death picture that they didn't have time during his life that they could actually draw him but they had a photograph, so they took the photograph and they took it to the art painter and they painted it, but it's very two-dimensional because obviously he's not there to fill in the whole facial look Um, but when he created his reaper, he was being sued by Cyrus McCormick because of hand infringements. They won the trial, but it took so long, it was so hard on him, he passed away of tuberculosis at the age of 30. Um, yeah, it was very sad. And it was actually in this vet. This was actually the wedding vet between John, Mary, John Manny and Mary Manny. So then it became the wedding bed between Mary and Robert. Kind of creepy. (laughs) It's a nice bed. It's rosewood, highest class you can get. So kind of creepy. They did have some spikes on the bed at different points, some cold points. I don't. Okay. So everyone's squished in there like little sardines, like it. We call is Josie's bedroom we know that she utilized this and then when she adopted her infant son Teddy this she turned her closet into a little nursery board so that's what we recreated in there with all his original stuff some of his toys even onto the dresser is a little handprint of toddler in caster or plaster. Uh, Robert actually did that for Jesse so she'd always had an image of her little boy so it was kind of sweet. The way that they adopted him though is that Jesse Robert knew Jesse wanted to have a child but he knew they weren't going to have it. She was already in her 50s. What was the chances of actually having a baby? Plus the fact is that this was a the niece. They weren't exactly sharing the same room and I'll talk a little bit about that after I tell about the child. So she was in Chicago one day she got a letter or telegram to go to Bloomington Normal. She went down there, came back the next day Robert came home the day after and she met him with the George She's like, hi, here's our son. His name's Theodore. He's looking. He's like, my, my what? He was 71 when they adopted. So he was not expecting that at all, which is another reason why he probably moved down to the basement was the fact that 71 years old, dealing with a newborn, he, Teddy was 8 and so when they adopted him. Way too young. Or way too old to be a first time dad. So, with this room, um, as Jessie's bedroom, she was married once to uh, guide her. So, when they come during the day, you'll hear Jessie door her tinker. Uh, he was an artist and dressmaker. The drawing up there above painting, above the window, is his and there's a picture of him on the dresser too. Um, they were married for about four years and then he passed away. Back then, they call it, a, he had a softening of the brain. Today, they know he was just having a series of strokes that eventually led to his death. So, when he died, Jessie moved back here to be with her sister and her aunt since and- this had always been her home. And as soon as that happened, everyone died at the same time. Within three years, all four, or three other women died. So as I said, the two of them had, oh, what did you say about how Marcia died? Okay, well, uh, well Hannah had breast cancer. Mary died from influenza. And Mar- Jessie, we actually have from her diaries about three years before she died. She was actually in the hospital, and they wanted to do a procedure. So they cleared out the entire Catholic ward, put her down into a chair, gave her a few sedatives, and started scraping her from breast to bone. Yeah, back then that was actually what they did when you had breast cancer. Stage four, they, yeah, that was their operative technique, It's just to scrape the crap out of you. So they did that. And two years later, she got sick. Obviously between that and the cancer, she passed away. So three women all died, leaving Jesse and Robert in the house together. So back then, you can't just stay living together without some blood ties between you. It's And he raised her since she was about three years old. He didn't know what else to do, so they got married. Marriage of convenience. But also another incentive for getting married is that when Mary died, she gave her money to Marcia and Jesse. When Marcia died, she gave her share to Jesse. So Jesse had a bunch of money, nowhere to live. Robert had a house, but he didn't have a lot of cash. So marriage of convenience. Another reason why he moved downstairs to make sure that there's nothing going on between him and the niece. Yes. Creepy. I love it. And then with this room, we do have... um, We used to actually have it roped off. People weren't allowed to come in here. You can see all the damage on the walls and the ceiling. Right now, you're over top of the dining room, and the dining room light fixture, you saw It's huge. It's massive. So it was pulling everything down. It was cracking on the walls in here. So they actually stabilized it by ripping up the floor, reinforcing it with steel beams, putting the floor back down that's why it looks horrible and stabilizing on the wall so it wouldn't crack anymore Uh, but when they did that the last curator she was very afraid that people would somehow damage the work that they did I don't know how you damage steel but yeah so she got it roped up. And this is another thing that I, I hated when we had kids come through here. Because they're like, why is that room closed off? And I'm like, well, because, you know, nobody can go in there. And they're like, but there's a lady in there. She's telling us she doesn't want us to come in here. So, I'm are like, okay. So every few months we would have some kid that would say the same thing. There's a lady in there and she doesn't want us to be in her room. And they're like, yeah, that's awesome. Oh so aren't you guys glad you're in the lady's room that doesn't want you to be in here?
2: Thank you for coming with me on a tour of the lovely Tinker Swiss Cottage. The historical site has a website, TinkerCottage.com, where you can find information on upcoming tours of the cottage, paranormal investigations, and other events celebrating the history of this grand home. Tours of the cottage are Tuesday through Sunday at 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. Tinker Swiss Cottage is located at 411 Kent Street in Rockford, and the management can be reached at 815-964-2424 or by email at info at And if you run into Steve or Ashley, tell them Sylvia Schultz sent you and says hi. I have a treat for you in the next show. My latest book, Hunting Demons, came out in late August. While doing research for the book, I ended up with several hours' worth of recorded interviews with Linda, the woman whose story is told in the second half of the book. I invite you to come with me and listen to Linda tell her own terrifying story of demonic attachment the next time we go, Lights Out.
1: Sylvia. That will be our show for the night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.